the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Antithesis. My name is Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. How do you live in Babylon? It's not an easy question to answer, is it? But it's one that is on many of our minds because we feel today increasingly, if you live in America as I do, like you're living in Babylon, at least in a country that is becoming more and more like Babylon every day. I suspect a lot of listeners around the world are feeling this, depending on what place they are in. The world is on fire, but God reigns. We must always remember that. We cannot forget this truth. It is simultaneously the case in this life that the world is on fire. Satan is an arsonist. He is attempting to burn down the creation that God made and called very good. And yet, Satan is not in control. Satan is not the sovereign over this place. He thinks he is. He acts as if he is. And we sometimes think that he is. But he's not. In truth, God is reigning over our chaos. God is controlling everything. In fact, God has appointed our very trials and challenges that we face. To be a Christian, a meaningful biblical Christian, not just a Christian in name only, means that you understand that the world burns, but also, paradoxically, to some degree, that God reigns. God is reigning over the chaos. I was reminded of this recently when I thought of the prophet Jeremiah's writing in Jeremiah 29, 3 to 7. Let me read it. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Jeremiah 29. 3 to 7. In thinking about this passage for our context in 2021, I came away with several thoughts. First, we are in very difficult times. First of seven, it is very hard to live in Babylon. To whatever degree this characterization is true of living in America in 2021 or living in your context, wherever you are, I can say this it is hard to live in a fallen place. And it is hard to live in particular in a country that is moving further and further away from a traditional worldview, certainly any vestige of a biblical worldview, and embracing neo-paganism, wokeness, secularity, evolution, 
so on and so forth. This is not easy to do. This is difficult. You feel the difficulty as a Christian. I feel the difficulty as a Christian. It is natural that we would. This is not peacetime. This is not easy. This is hard. And if trends continue in our culture and in our society, I want you to expect that it will continue to be hard in lots of ways. The world that our fathers and mothers knew and our grandfathers and grandmothers knew, at least in many places in America, has changed. It has changed in a profound way. It doesn't mean that America has gone dark overnight and there's no light in this country and there's no vestige of a traditional worldview, traditional morality, these kinds of things. That's not true. That's not true at all. We don't want to egg the pudding. We don't, we don't want to overdo this. There is still a lot of good in this country. There are still many people who have not bowed the knee to Babylon. There still are many who want to work together across religious lines and background lines for uh, a just and peaceable and flourishing public order. So let that be said. I'm speaking in all these senses in a common grace way. I'm not meaning only evangelicals. I'm talking about our civilization more broadly. But yet it is hard to live here. And that means, secondly, you and I are going to need to remember Jeremiah. And if you're a preacher, a pastor listening to this, I would encourage you to think hard about preaching from Jeremiah because we are increasingly in a context that maps with Jeremiah's. We're not there yet. Let's, let's be clear about that. There's a lot of ground uh, left to go, and there's a lot left to fight for in this country, in the West more broadly, across the world, even broader than that. Nonetheless, you must remember Jeremiah. Remember what Jeremiah 29, uh, 3 says, to all the exiles, or verse 4, excuse me, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. And then again in verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. This is an important point that we might miss in reading this text quickly. We sometimes think that uh, God's sovereignty means that he will help us react to the challenges that come our way. He'll help us rebound well. He's, he's going to pick us up off the ground after we get hit. That's not untrue. But what I want you to know is that scripture goes deeper than that. Scripture, scripture makes a sharper point than that. Scripture indicates that God sends the people into exile. God sends the Israelites into a pagan nation. He puts them in a difficult place. He appoints their challenges and their trials. It's not just that there are challenges and trials because there is a sinful world in a generic and broad sense. And so God steps in after the, after the fact and he helps people find their way. That's not accurate in, in biblical terms. No, you have to press in further. In remembering Jeremiah, you have to remember that God sent Jeremiah and the Israelites to the place in which they find themselves. God put Israel in Babylon. You know this if you have studied your Bible and been a Christian for a good long while. But it is worth thinking this through afresh for you and for me, especially in the 21st century as it wears on. God sent Israel into Babylon. God put the people there. God executed the exile. Of course, he used human means to do that. We don't lose sight of what is called secondary causation in theological terms. But we note that the text itself twice in the passage I read underlines the fact that it is the Lord 
who put the people in this new place. So you have to remember this for your time too, not just for the prophet, but for you. God has put us here. God has appointed this trial. God has appointed our challenges. It's not necessarily what we would have sketched for ourselves. The sanctification plan that God has given us is often not the one we would draw up. Do you know this? Do you think on this? Is this true for you? The sanctification plan that God has for us is the one he drew up. Your sanctification plan, your glorification plan, has been drawn up by a perfect heavenly father. He is working all things according to the counsel of his will. He is carrying out the plan of redemption strategized before the foundation of the earth by the Father. The Father has brought this to pass through the work of the Son, and the Spirit is applying that work to us. And so God is doing what God wants to do. God is not only the one who helps you rebound from your trials, God is the one who appoints your trials. God is the one who raises nations up. God is the one who takes them down. God is the one who causes Israel to thrive in its circumstances when it is following the Lord. God is the one who sends Israel into exile when Israel compromises its faith. God is the the one who is sovereign over all things. God is the one who providentially rules all things. God is ruling the people of God in this passage, even as they are in Babylon. Remember this. Remember this for your life today. Third, instead of an acceleration mindset, have a cultivation mindset. I referenced this recently as I was engaging some of the discussion over Mars Hill Church. I won't talk about that at length here, but I'll just quickly say it's become apparent to me in thinking about the last 10 to 15 years of the neo-reformed movement, call it what you want, that one of the pitfalls of that movement practiced by some was a focus on acceleration, on going fast. Instead of having a focus on speed in your pastoral ministry, in your fatherhood, in your motherhood, in your career, your vocation, in your broader life, have a cultivation mindset. Focus not on speed, focus on cultivation. Focus on, in other words, stewarding what God has given you well. Are there times to go fast? Are there times to push hard? Are there times to put a lot of weight on your back? Do some of you out there have jobs where where you have to do quick fire work? Absolutely. None of that is bad or negative necessarily. But in our broader Christian life, this passage tells us, slow down. It, It says in so many words, you're in Babylon, Jeremiah. You're in Babylon. Israelites, faithful Israelites, that is. You're there. I don't have a plan that I'm telling you about right now to spring you free, to get you out overnight. No, you're there. I've sent you into exile. There's a long history of unfaithfulness that precedes you, that has led you to this place, and now you're there. And and you need to not constantly be crashing against the cage. Instead, you need to know that I sent you there. You need to have a cultivation mindset. What does this mean? Well, let me explore that in my fourth point. To have a cultivation mindset means things like the following for the people of God in this passage. They need to build houses, verse 5, and live in them. 
Well, you only build a house if you're going to live in it for a while, at least normally. So that's a long-term project. They need to plant gardens. That is a second long-term project. A garden does not spring up overnight. You plant it one season. You work very hard to get the, the plot right. It comes up hopefully with a crop a year later or whatever the season is that follows when uh, that particular crop is supposed to sprout. It takes a long time is the point. You can tell I have extensive gardening experience here. And you're supposed to eat the produce of the garden. That's a long-term project. Verse 6 instructs the people of God to take wives and have sons and daughters. That is, again, a long-term project. That doesn't happen overnight. To have sons and daughters, to build a family, takes time. So in all this, we see fourthly, this fourth point, that you're supposed to build houses, plant gardens, and grow families. Friends, I'm guessing that a good number of you have thought about a passage like this. Maybe you've heard it preached. There's been some discussion about seeking the welfare of the city, for example, in evangelical circles in years past. I, I want to I raise this afresh, though, and remind us of the beauty of this calling. The Israelites in Babylon the people of God, are not supposed to spring themselves out of Babylon. That is what we would expect God to say. We would expect God to be talking about a kind of Jason Bourne rescue mission to get the people of God out. Instead, the passage goes the direct opposite way and indicates that the Lord God himself has put his people in this place first. He sent them into exile, verses 4 and 7. And then, verse 5, he wants the people to cultivate a God-glorifying, God-honoring, joy-drenched life where they are. With a specifically long-term focus, he focuses on them doing things, undertaking actions, forging patterns of life that are long-term oriented. Build houses, live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters, as God allows. Multiply there. The Lord says, the end of verse 6, and do not decrease. I cannot tell you how tremendously encouraging and correcting and reframing this passage is for us. This is so important. None of this means that we would not seek to be salt and light. You got to continue as a Christian to be a salt and light public witness. You got to continue to speak the truth. You got to continue to preach the gospel. You got to continue to declare the whole counsel of God in Babylon. Note that. It's not an either or between this kind of cultivation mindset that we're discussing here or telling the truth. You got to do both. And the New Testament, the book of Acts, the gospels, of course, before that shows us, gives us Uh, a framework for living in a fallen world as a follower of Jesus Christ, a born-again believer, one who has claimed the blood of Jesus as our washing, our cleansing, our forgiveness from God, and one who has been raised to life through saving faith by God in the resurrected Christ. You can't, though, forget this element of living in Babylon. And I think this is missing from a lot of evangelical theologies of life in a fallen world. This is freeing. This is encouraging. This is helpful. The world is on fire all around you. You are tempted to feel stressed and disheartened and to sense that you should opt out of things, that you should move somewhere. There is a case for moving somewhere, by the way. 
that may well be what you should do. You should may well seek to move so that you can execute this kind of vision in this passage. And yet, we need to note, whatever the decision is about where you live specifically, our goal as a Christian is 1 Timothy 2, to live a quiet life, which I think very much works with this Jeremiah 29 passage, bringing these things together. This passage, of course, in Jeremiah 29 is not a mandate for the New Covenant Church, but it does inform and speak into how Christians would live in a pagan context, a fallen world, an ungodly society. What are you supposed to do? Are your instincts supposed to be head for the hills and opt out? Is that what you and I are called to do if we're going to be faithful? This passage, again, to repeat myself, goes the opposite way. Build houses, plant gardens, beautiful gardens, grow families, enjoy your sons and daughters, raise them to know God and the fear and admonition of the Lord. By extension, what else could we say here in terms of this kind of cultivation mindset living in Babylon? Well, this is directly based off of what the text says, but plant trees. Buy some land if you can, if God blesses you. God blesses your marriage and your family, your vocation. This isn't true for all of us. We can't all do this. But if you can, you might think about, I don't know, getting some land, planting a tree, planting a garden, uh, working with your kids outside, uh, training them in these ways. This isn't a requirement of faithful Christianity. You might live in a walk-up apartment on the 29th floor of a megacity and be faithful to follow Jesus. Praise God for that. There's no, there's no guilt here if you can't plant a tree. But if you can, that's a wonderful thing. By extension, continuing the point, start writing a symphony. Write a song. Teach yourself a, a musical instrument craft. Establish a lifelong friendship. Begin seeking to be a great friend to people. Perhaps you don't have a spouse. Perhaps you're not married. Perhaps you're single. You are not shut out from meaningful relationships as a Christian. Begin establishing a lifelong friendship or several. Cultivate that. Not in a frenzied way. Again, with that cultivation mindset. We all need to join arms with a a sound local church. Join arms with a sound local church. Link up with a church that preaches the word, that has a pulpit that exalts Christ from an expository ministry. This is essential. This is needful for us all. And have a long-term focus. God can move you on in his providential will, of course. Yes, we have categories for that. But at least in your planning, as you're looking at your life in a fallen place, Uh, Do what you can to link up with a sound local church. If you need to move, move. If you need to make a job change, do it. Or if you're planted in a place, but you need to drive a good long ways to get to a sound local church, do it. Do whatever is needed in order to put yourself under sound doctrine. Life is too short to sit under unsound doctrine. What has been exposed in the last year or two is how many churches aren't really that committed to staying open, gathering, and preaching sound doctrine as if their life depends on it. We need more pastors like the Puritan pastors in the 1660s and 1670s in England who, under tremendous state pressure, kept the church going, kept preaching to their people, braved 
persecution from the state in order to keep meeting. Please hear me. We need a very strong resurgence of that Puritan spirit. We do not need more pastors who are eager to shut the church down. We need more church, more churches and more pastors, excuse me, who are thrilled to try to keep things going. Are there hard questions and gray areas that pastors face? Yes, there are. Are there some matters that Christians are going to handle a little differently under state pressure? Yes, there are. The Puritans and nonconformists did not all respond in exactly the same way to the Clarendon Code of the 1660s, for example, which tried to shut the church down, if that is foreign to you. Basically, this was an assertion of power by Charles II over Puritan and independent churches, trying to enforce a kind of high church Anglicanism that had very little zeal and love for the gospel on England and its churches. And there were many nonconformists who went to prison because they, they kept their church open, they continued to minister to their people, and they did not respond to the state by shutting their church down. They had to take some interesting means in order to do that. Uh, there's a lot of work needed, by the way, in this area. There's very little discussion today about the Puritan period in question, the 1660s in particular, and how Puritans responded. If you're a PhD student out there, or an MDiv student, or a THM student, or an author, I would encourage you to think very hard about this period as being a potential field of study. We need a lot more writing on it, but I digress. We need a Puritan spirit today with regard to gathering the church. And you as a member are not a pastor, but you can be part of strengthening and supporting pastors who do have that conviction. You would be shocked to learn just how encouraging it is to have encouraging members. To be an encouraging church member is a big blessing for a pastor. Hopefully we can be that kind of member. Moving on under this, all under this fourth point, these are, I guess, sub points. So I guess I'm in true Puritan fashion here, true Puritan form, uh, it seems. Build a vocation. Don't just hopscotch around in jobs, different jobs. Build a vocation. You may change up your vocation, your job, your career. I get that. I have a category for that. But as much as you can, get a plan for your vocation. If you're uh, in college or in high school listening to this or in your young 20s or, or even your 30s, take steps to build a vocation that will last decades Try to build a craft. Don't just punch a clock. Don't just go to work. Don't work for the weekend. God desires that you and I as Christians would be meaningful workers in his kingdom. We are not made to accelerate, blasting through every fence that is around us in our lives. There are times to go fast. But what did God say in Jeremiah 29.5? Plant gardens eat their produce. At least some people would have had a, a vocation or a career gardening. Well, you may well not have that vocation. I certainly don't. But transfer that mindset, I repeat myself once more, to your vocation. This may be homemaking. This may be being a lawyer. This may be being a public works worker. This may be all sorts of careers, professor, teacher. This may uh, be athlete. It can be lots of different things. Dentist. It doesn't matter what precisely your vocation is, provided it is a moral vocation. Build into it. Approach your vocation 
not as somebody who's trying to careen around, crashing against the cage, to use that metaphor again, try to craft a vocation, build a vocation to glorify God by. Welcome a child into our world. If you're married, if God blesses you with a wife or a husband, welcome a child into this world. Think about how counterintuitive that would have sounded to the Israelites in Babylon. We should not bring a child into this world. Isn't that what unbelievers all around us say today? They, they congratulate themselves for either not having children or having tiny families. What a witness it is to faith and trust in God to bring children into this world and to have a bunch of children as God blesses you. There's not a magic number out there, but what a blessing to grow a family, to have numerous kids. Kids fill our life with joy. There are many challenges involved in being a father or mother. I always try to say father or mother instead of parents, the gender neutral term parents. It's an okay term. You can use it, but it's more precise to talk about fathers and mothers in biblical terms. Welcoming a child into our world is such a witness unto life. Having a happy family that is run well, that has a father who is leading the family well and is loving his wife well in a Christ-like way, and a wife who is building into her kids and nurturing her kids and not trying to jump over them to some kind of worldly pathway, but loves her kids and sees discipleship of her children as her central life calling, at least for the, those years, those young years, is a major witness. It matters to God. It will be rewarded in the age to come. In sum, build houses, plant gardens, grow families, all as God leads, blesses, and allows. In all this, furthermore, in verse 7, my fifth matter here to consider, seek the welfare of the city. Verse 7 instructs the people of God in this ancient context to pray to the Lord on behalf of the city, on behalf of this pagan place. In its welfare, the text says, verse 7, you will find your welfare. So where you are, you're seeking the good of that place. You want its good. You simultaneously recognize that this is a place that is deeply influenced and weighed down by fallenness. You're going to see fallenness and sin more specifically all around you. And yet you're called to be one who doesn't try to destroy that place. You're called as much as you can, and we're going to hit some serious limitations, many of us here, to strive to bless others, even in a common grace way. Seek the welfare of the city. This is not really defined in this passage in a limited form. There's all kinds of ways that Christians can seek the good of the people around them. Be that kind of Christian. Sixth, do not live in fear of man. It's so easy right now to be terrorized and terrified by our world. Watch the time you spend on social media. Watch the time you spend on the internet. Balance yourself. Do not be a social media addict. Do not be an internet addict. A good number of us have jobs that require us to be on computers and perhaps on social media and on the internet a good portion of the day. I understand that. That's not going away as a societal trend. But I would still say to you, be careful. Watch yourself. Make sure that you have time where you unplug every day. And then you have seasons where you unplug. And you have rhythms where you unplug. It's a good idea, I would say, on Sundays, for example, 
to unplug if you can. I'm not laying down a new law. I am simply saying I find it personally quite refreshing to have very limited contact with the internet, social media, my phone on Sundays. And you can extend that more broadly if you want. But fundamentally, you've got to know this. Being plugged in all the time is going to ramp up your fear. It's going to ramp up your attention on what man is doing. I'm not against knowing what man is up to in different ways. This podcast, in a serious way, is trying to handle (laughs) what man is doing from a distinctly biblical standpoint. But you cannot have a life that is structured around fallen humanity and expect that you will not live in fear of man. You will at some level. This passage, Jeremiah 29, pushes you and me away from that kind of existence. We're all tempted to fear man. We're all tempted to bathe ourselves in stress and anxiety and worry about the future and worry about the welfare of our kids and stay up at night stressing through how things are going to go in years to come. And this passage does not encourage any such activity. This passage rebukes us all. It tells us to have a cultivation mindset. It tells us to live, in so many words, in trust of the Lord. The future is entrusted to God. It is not entrusted to you and me. We don't have any control of it. We don't know what is coming. And even if we did know what is coming, we can't game out our lives so that there are no difficulties or challenges or stresses for ourselves, for our loved ones, for our spouse, for our children, for our church, for our friends, and on it goes. There's no way to do this. Friends, spoiler alert, there's no way for you and me to make ourselves God. There's no way to push a button and become sovereign over the cosmos. You and I have been given our little plot, our life to steward by God, to cultivate. That's what we focus on. We can't control even that, of course. We can't control our kids. We can't save our kids. We can't make the garden uh, produce fruit, vegetables. We can't ensure that our house stays in a perfect state. It never will be in one. So again, at, at no level are we perfect, are we sovereign, are we able to control things. I'm not saying you can't control the broad contours of your life, but you can control the smaller things of your life. No, you can't control anything. You're not God. You never will be. There's an absolute distinction between the, cre- the creator excuse me, and the creature. There always will be, even into eternity to come. So what you can do is you can work hard by the power of the Spirit in you, propelled by divine grace, the grace that is working in you to sanctify you and transform you into the very image of Christ, and you cannot live in fear of man and repent when you do, confessing that to God as is necessary for all of us, and then you can freshly recommit yourself to fearing God, to living for God's glory, to entrusting yourself to God, to praying to the Lord on your behalf and on behalf of the city. I want to close here by just reminding us how needful this passage is. One of the glowing gems that we can pluck from the Old Testament and in many ways, in a new covenantal sense, inform and shape the way we live in our new modern Babylon. The world is on fire. 
It always has been since the fall of Adam. It's always been difficult to be a follower of of God. It's difficult now, and it's going to be difficult in days to come to follow God. You can't push a button and change that, nor can I. You can't opt out, furthermore, of being in this context. There are only fallen places to live. It may be that you need to make a change for your family and for your own good. It may be that you need to move to be nearer to a strong local church. That is a good thing to do. These are good questions to ask of yourself right now in this time. There are changes to make. There are times to go faster or slower. Let that be said. But fundamentally, live your life with a cultivation mindset. And even as you and I may well, in different respects, find ourselves as Israelites in Babylon, so to speak, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. In Babylon, God says, multiply there and do not decrease. The world is on fire, friends, but God reigns. Rest in that. Enjoy that and trust yourself to God. Whatever happens here, you and I will live eternally with God in the new Jerusalem. We will be taken into the very home house of God. We will be in the land where gardens only grow and only bear fruit. We will be married to Christ and he will be our joy beyond all eternity, beyond all time, beyond all imagining. God bless you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.